The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On today's episode, Michael Simmons looks at the graph that justified the second lockdown. Christopher Howes examines what happened to receive pronunciation. And Melissa Kite wonders whether Surrey's busybodies have followed her and her builder boyfriend to Cork. First up, Michael Simmons. Two stories are emerging from the Coven Inquiry. One that it wants to tell and one that it does not. The first is a tale of foul-mouthed incompetence of which there's no shortage of evidence dredged from the private messages of the main actors. The more important story can be found in the submitted statements, hundreds of pages of thoughts, documents and reflections. They raise an important question which Baroness Hallett's inquiry shows little interest in answering. Was lockdown based on a false premise, conjured up by poorly drafted models? This week, the inquiry heard from Ben Warner who in December 2019 was brought in by Dominic Cummings to be the head of data at number 10. He quickly became one of the most important special advisors in the building, given that the liberty and future of the country during the pandemic was decided not by Parliament or the Cabinet, but according to the production and interpretation of data by a small number of officials. In his written evidence, Warner made an admission that went unnoticed by the inquiry, but may stand to be one of the most important points of the whole debacle. The key part of Warner's statement sheds light upon Whitehall's flawed decision-making. On 31st October 2020, some 40 million British TV viewers sat down to watch an emergency press conference in which Boris Johnson, flanked by Sir Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty, announced a second lockdown. for disturbing your Saturday evening with more news of Covid. Sir Patrick presented a slideshow given the data that justified the restrictions. It was terrifying. The argument was summed up by a graph saying that if there were no changes in policy or behaviour, there could be up to 4,000 deaths a day, three times the number from the first wave in the spring. So the models are clearly showing that this could be the case in these scenarios that are presented here. The other scenarios, later presented with oversimplified caveats by the BBC, were hardly more reassuring. It seemed to be an open and shut case for lockdown. But the graph was wrong. It was out of date and based on flawed information, as was later pointed out by academics including Cambridge's David Spiegelhalter and by the UK Statistics Authority itself. Might this have been a genuine mistake? In the rush and the panic, news of the lockdown had already leaked to the press, surely officials would have published a wrong graph only if they believed it to be right. In his testimony, Warner remembers seeing a graph being circulated among scientists two days before lockdown that was screenshotted out of a SPY-M the modelling group working paper. It showed the predictions from different UK academic groups if the pandemic carried on with no further changes. This precisely fits the description of the Halloween graph. Warner sent the screenshot to colleagues in number 10 in the Cabinet Office. Angela McLean, now his Chief Scientific Advisor, but then at the Ministry of Defence, sounded the alarm. The graph had been based on a rate of virus growth, the R number, that was by then known to be incorrect. Angela flagged that because of more recent data, R was now predicted to be lower and therefore the peak number of deaths would be lower than presented in the SPY-M graph. 
Warner and McLean agreed that a more sensible graph, the reasonable worst-case scenario, should be used instead. Warner testified that he went into the cabinet room to raise the alarm to the Prime Minister and his officials. The Covid peak might be half of that forecast, he said. Having flagged corrupt data, he thought the graph would be taken out of circulation. He says he left number 10 that day under the impression that the SPY-M working paper graph was not going to be used in any public announcement. Only later did Warner find out that this graph had been shown on national television. He was dismayed, not least because he knew it would look as if officials were incompetent. He was right. They were castigated. Unfairly, in my view, he wrote, because these results should not have been presented when it was known in government at this point that they were no longer up to date. He doesn't claim the second lockdown was an error, but his evidence does question the quality of data upon which the policy was based. If the second lockdown was justified to the public with data that was known to be wrong by the government before it was televised, then surely the government acted unethically. Public health best practice stresses the need for transparency and honesty, including being frank about error margins in models. Honesty should have been paramount. Given the consequences of lockdown, social, economic, educational, Warner's discovery ought to be a scandal. There should be a flurry of follow-ups to discover how Witty and Sir Patrick end up on national television presenting information that was not just bogus, but known to be bogus. The revelation raises other issues. How much government policy is based on models? How transparent are they? Are the assumptions published? The COVID inquiry might have uncovered the biggest question in politics. How did broken models make their way through Whitehall without proper scrutiny? But we should not expect the Hallett inquiry to pursue this argument. That was Michael Simmons. And now, Christopher House. Cockney is dead, but so is the King's English. Long live standard Southern British English. The Cockney Barbara Windsor yelling, Get out of my pub! is as fossilised as Eliza Doolittle. And what a shock it is today to hear the late Queen, aged 21, declare, My whole life, my whole life, whether it be long or short, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service, shall be devoted to your service, and the service of our great imperial family, and to the service of our great imperial family. She seems to say, Devoted for devoted, service for service, and end for and. Now a study from the University of Essex has put the accents of London and the South East into the laboratory and shown that three are dominant. They are Estuary English, which is replacing Cockney, Standard Southern British English, replacing the monarch's way of speaking, otherwise known as received pronunciation, and coming up in a gap between multicultural London English. The authors, Dr Amanda Cole and Dr Patricia Strikarchuk, sensibly enough note that accents don't depend entirely on sounds. They're also held together by social forces. But their paper, which is called The Search for Linguistically Coherent Accents, pins down the accents of 193 linguistic guinea pigs, partly by making them read out little lists of words, toad, held, though falling, or hot, together, gone, thick, 
The three accent clusters emerged through analysis of the diphthongs, as might be expected if you think of the Cockney way of pronouncing mouth as math, though this also incorporates F for TH, also a trait of multicultural London English, as used by good old Stormzy. It's a kind of rapper thing in it, he says. Doctors Cole and Strikarchuk haven't discovered these new accents, but they have given them a phonetic standing. So why has received pronunciation taken to its deathbed? The Essex study quotes opinions that received pronunciation is regarded as having a rather dated, even negative, flavour in contemporary British English. And it has an ideological link with the past and the upper class, which are disapproved of. It's important to realise, then, that a regional change of accent is partly the choice of the people who speak it. Just because vowel changes in history can be reduced to iron laws does not mean that change now ignores fashion and emulation. In the past, Dr Cole has shown that Cockney speakers are regarded as less intelligent than some other white British. Now Cockney has gone the, the way of the white working class itself. Contrarywise, received pronunciation speakers may feel embarrassed at using an accent identified with public schools, being a member of POP, Eton's body of senior prefects, once reflected popularity, now, like membership of the Bullingdon Club at Oxford, to the outside world, it's more like a mark of Cain. Both groups used received pronunciation. It's amazing how quickly accents change. In the mid-1990s, Harry Enfield, with John Glover as Mr Chumley Warner, was laughing at pronunciations and attitudes of only 50 or 60 years earlier. We also have to take care not to be misled by old films. The enjoyable Anthony Asquith film of Pygmalion, uh, made in 1938, has the Manchester-bred Wendy Hiller as the cockney flower girl Eliza Doolittle, saying, I'm too lady-like to take it out of me mouth. And I'm too lady-like to take it out of me mouth. As she chews a chocolate. The son of a Hungarian father, Leslie Howard, played the received pronunciation Professor Higgins as someone who referred to taxis and carriages. We must be aware, too, that people often tried to speak better, as it were, for the microphone. They deployed a telephone voice. They wanted to sound of a higher class, whereas that is now widely avoided. The Essex study acknowledges that the linguistic continuum between Cockney and received pronunciation used to parallel the class continuum. That class did not emerge as an important factor in the three new accent clusters. It may be, the authors say, that class is not an important linguistic predictor for young people in southeast England, or at least not for our group of speakers who were 
predominantly university students. It certainly fits in with the Duke of Sussex's rebellion against the palace firm. Despite an Eton education and service as a British officer, Prince Harry has rejected received pronunciation and embraced standard southern British English with a variable sprinkling of glottal stops. Yet I was surprised to find from the Essex study that white British women were strongly overrepresented uh, among speakers of standard southern British English rather than the more socially informal estuary English or multicultural London English. The reason for this female bias is complicated. Uh, it's complicated by social pressure, by their own aspirations, and by the conventions of what it is to be a woman as a speaker. Do you act in a gendered way? Do you behave like a ladette? There is still plenty of room to be annoyed by other people's accents. I'm infuriated to hear BBC radio trailers employ multicultural London English markers as a trendy way of speaking. This variety incorporates some vowel sounds from parts of the Caribbean, so price is pronounced price, or even prass. But of course, not even Stormzy himself is from a Caribbean background. His mother came from Ghana. He was, however, brought up in South Norwood, where multicultural London English is the thing. The Essex study identifies those accents that have thriven the Japanese knotweed or Himalayan balsam in the Garden of Speech. But it does not rule out individual or family preservation of local accents. My heart leaps up when I hear Cockney tones in the office. I was brought up in Leatherhead in Surrey and was aware that Surrey had its own accent, which differed even from that of South London. Our neighbour, a blacksmith, spoke it. If you took a train from London to Brighton and got out at every station, you might have found a different accent among the older folk at each stop. But in a multicultural London, multicultural London English is bound to triumph. That was Christopher House. And finally, Melissa Kite. We're waiting for the lambs to turn up, said the lady, selling lottery tickets from her car in the supermarket car park. She had accosted the builder boyfriend as he walked by, shouting, I want a word with you. We're all very worried about what you're going to be doing with that old house up there. The builder boyfriend assured her we don't have the money to do anything. Aside from tidying it up, we have no fancy plans and we like old houses. As for llamas, yes, she had that right in terms of what most English people would be putting on the land, but we'd brought our horses. The good lady seemed reassured and within a few minutes she was selling him a lottery ticket from the village pitch and putt club. Weekly members, private lotto draw, jackpot 500 euros. Our new house in Ireland is magnificent in its old world charm. Stuff full of furniture left behind and religious paintings because it was once a priest's house. We cleared what we didn't want and called the lady from the local charity shop. 
who was happy to come up and have a cup of tea with us, tell us all the gossip, which was mostly about us, and load boxes of chintzy china, decanters, tea sets and clocks into her car. I've always said I've been house hunting for a place in time, and finally it seemed we had boarded our time machine. Each morning I awake to a view so perfectly pastoral that I fancy someone has fixed a painting to the window pane as I sleep. The hills roll this way and that, a rising sun over the top. On a distant road, a car or tractor can just be made out, driving from one side of the horizon to the other. We're eating everything local, the beef, the eggs, the cheese, the yoghurt, it's all from farms within a 20-minute radius. The supermarket only stocks local produce. We ate a sharply delicious apple pie one evening with cream from a local dairy in a tiny bottle. I drove to a nearby town for a broom and the social security account, pulled up and parked the car in the first place that took my fancy. Not a parking warden in sight, just a man in a van selling potatoes. It was a harbour town, looking out to a wide expanse of sea, next stop America. All the shops here are painted different colours, each selling something different, from meat to brooms. On bank holiday Monday, we drove to Roaring Water Bay. It was a scorching hot day and I had to keep pulling over to take photos of the bright green fields, the azure sea, golden mountains and deep blue sky. I went to Montana once and they called it Big Sky because the view is so wide and here is the same. Everywhere you go, the view goes on forever. It was so warm we ended up sunbathing outside a cafe where we ate crisp bacon sandwiches before walking the dogs on a beach. The day after that, we drove into town for a vacuum cleaner, taking two cars as I wanted to go to the bank. The BB loaded the stuff we had bought from the hardware store and went home ahead of me. Later, he explained that he had been driving along in his truck when a man flagged him down. He asked him to confirm his name, then showed him a card and formally cautioned him. He told him that a neighbour had rung us in for having a bonfire in the farmyard. It won't be an Irish neighbour, the man from the council said, looking disgusted. He said to tell me, the owner of the house, to email him a receipt to show that we had hired a skip which should cover it. The BB looked up the rules that evening and insisted farms were allowed to burn brush. Over dinner, we went through the likely suspects. We've made friends with all the farmers around us and we cannot believe it is any of them. We've shaken big calloused hands belonging to men with bags over their wellies and we've looked into their kind eyes and we've had a meeting of minds. I'm sure of it. Added to which, we were warned by a lady down the lane that there's an English resident around here who's been ringing farmers in, alleging hair-splitting breaches of EU rules. What are the chances there's a middle-class Surrey busybody somewhere on this hillside and that we've come to the ends of the earth only to find ourselves hemmed in with the thing we tried to run away from? That was Melissa Kite. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>